So I'm writing a novel. <laughs> is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions, and sometimes, actually quite frequently recently, <laughs> interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with one of the hosts of the Appendix N Book Club podcast, Noel Vin Hoy. Along with his co-host, Jeff Goad, Hoy has recorded over a hundred episodes of the Appendix N Book Club. I've brought them up on this podcast a few times in no small part because, frankly, they were part of the inspiration for me to go ahead with So I'm Writing a Novel. What is the Appendix N Reading List? Well, the Appendix N Reading List, you will find it at the back of the 1979 Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. It is a list of authors and their works that Gary Gygax says inspired him when he was co-creating Dungeons & Dragons. If you don't happen to have that book handy, I've also linked to it in the show notes for today's episode. In roughly the first half of an hour-long episode, Jeff, Hoy, and a guest will discuss the story and literary merits of the book, and in the back half, roughly, they will discuss how elements of the book could be torn out and put into your tabletop role-playing game experience, whether it's Dungeons & Dragons or any number of other games that might be relevant. I've enjoyed many of the episodes about books that were not sword and sorcery, however, many Appendix N texts are sword and sorcery, and I have gotten a lot of valuable research as well as just straight up enjoyment from listening to their show, which is why I was delighted to be a guest back in the spring. I'll link to that episode in the show notes for this if you want to check it out. This isn't about me though, this is about Hoy. Let's get talking to that man, that wonderful, wonderful man. And here I am with Hoy. Hello, Hoy. Hi, Oliver. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so fun to see you, man. I've been looking forward to this. Okay, so let's just barrel right into the questions. Why not? Uh, sure. I'm curious. What do you do when you're not reading and thinking about speculative fiction? I know basically nothing about you outside that world. Uh, maybe you prefer it that way. We can move on. But yeah, no, no. Like, I mean, you know, I have a day job like lots of people, and um, my fantasy is—I do not have the fantasy, unlike many people, of being in full time in gaming or anything like that. I think that to a certain extent, this whole thing about like doing what you love—you should like what you do. But doing what you love, the thing that you're most passionate about—I think that's a good recipe for some people maybe not for everybody to really kill that love and so you know i have a decent day job you know could always be better um speculative fiction is just i'm a compulsive like you know if you put a cereal box in front of me you know my eyes will just start scanning it so um <laughs> i go in waves it was about maybe a 10-year period where i was really focused on crime fiction uh, of various sorts um anything his anything about any kind of history other than say 19th century european history will like tweak me and I'll be like, oh, I got, you know, just, you know, and there's just any topic. And I know I won't get through the history books. And the problem with, I think with history books that we have uh, lost is the narrative aspect of history. We know that history is very complex and it can't be reduced to little sound bites, but popular history um, is maybe a skill that's been lost, I think, or maybe that's why journalists do it now and not academics. You know, mm. so, so history, newspaper, uh, speculative fiction, absolutely. Uh, gaming books, uh, film and media, uh, comic books, not as much. I kind of gave that up about 10 years ago just because I ran out of space in my apartment. Um, so. yeah, floppies in particular take up a yeah. lot of room. I've got a bunch of half boxes. I'm trying to figure out what to do with. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the Kindle was a big savior, you know, although this project really ruined me because I was all set to just keep on reading on Kindle and then Jeff roped me into this project and now I have like, you know, 
I think three or 400 paperbacks that I actually have at least a bookshelf in my office at work. So I keep them all there instead of here and here at home. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's funny. Cause yeah, that was actually gonna be my next question because yeah, like collecting old appendix and paperbacks is fun. I stopped collecting comics years ago. And then yeah. because of your wretched podcast, uh, I have <laughs> that, like that part of my brain just sw- uh, switched over to uh, old, old appendix and paperbacks uh, now. So I'm just collecting those. I have multiple editions of some things. Why? Um, but it is yep. sometimes necessary to read the stories, right? Depending on availability. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mm-hmm. know Jeff loves to acquire them ruthlessly defiled them um but it yeah, sounds like you not. also been collecting them <laughs> yeah i do not defile i'm a big believer in um it's just that golden age illustration everything now is very polished but you can see a lot of it is photo reference or photoshop and uh, i mean it's still way beyond like the skills that i could ever aspire to but i think you lose a little something in translation you know when you don't see a frazetta i mean frazetta's giant but even some of the lesser lights of the era um you know they're they're you know, facility with line and all that is just, it's incredible. And I don't think we see that as much now. It's more just like hero poses. Here's the main character, um, you know, or then it goes too far in the other direction where it's like the, the, the action is impossible, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> swirling mists and people flying through the air. It's very wuxia uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, Conan fighting the frost giants, you know, the, the the two frost giants you know and the, that beautiful sort of almost himalayan landscape behind them right yeah yeah i mean uh i should be so lucky to get a book published and have one of those covers but i do think there's a bit of fatigue um among a lot of fans of genre stuff in particular fantasy with the sort of almost like D fifth ed house style mm-hmm. um you know as you say very photoshopped uh i i yeah, just like vaguely painterly style. <laughs> uh, when the entire you know shelf of the bookstore is looking like that, it's it's mm-hmm. hard to get excited. But then you go back right, to right. these older things, and there's that greater variety, right? Even if some of it can be clunkier or whatever, or technically less proficient in some cases, uh, it has got more maybe personality. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the same reason why I like sort of the black and white line art that was the interior of gaming books, uh, as opposed to again that very polished. Again. I don't take anything away from it. I just think that everything should be in sort of um, a ration diet of of uh, this thing and then that thing. You know, again, it's not a proficiency I could never expi- aspire to. So that's why I never became a visual artist. You know, I can take photographs. You know, for here and there, but not, not as a visual artist. So, <laughs> oh, fair enough. Well, overexposure of anything is too much. Like I don't yeah. mind an IPA, but three quarters of the shelves in my beer store is all oh, yeah, IPAs. Forget about it. Like... Forget about it. Uh, like for that for that very reason, I've only been drinking like pilsners for like the last year and a half. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so what is the origin story of the Appendix N book club? How was it born? Okay, um, it's a two-stage, so if it gets too long, just edit this out. But um, I hadn't been gaming for a long time, uh, although I kept on buying gaming books and gaming texts, you know, both in book and PDF form. Um, and then sort of Lamentations of the Flame Princess is the one that sort of got me back a little bit into thinking about old-school Dungeons & Dragons, because it had that very, uh, you know, cosmic horror vibe and what have you. And then... Hmm. Free RPG Day came up. I don't know if that's a thing that they have in Canada or not. Um, yeah, so, well, so we, we, we do yeah, it. Yep. Yeah, so, so a promotional day for, you know, the handout stuff. So I was in line, not even at my regular game store. It was another game store in Brooklyn. Uh, decided to go to Free RPG Day. And then uh, Jeff was there in line. And we started talking a little bit. But this did not actually become the origin of the, the book club right, right away. So we just saw each other and like, oh, okay, hey, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I didn't even play the game with him that day. Um, and then about a year later... I started, uh, you know, I saw like DCC was on sale. So I bought a copy of DCC. Oh, this is kind of exciting. And then I saw that there was a DCC meetup group and I was looking at these sessions and, oh, that looks great. Couldn't get into any of the games because the first two or three games had been subscribed. But then he had said, oh, I want to do a book club. So I went to the book club and I think there was a couple other people, but I was the only one who was going there kind of regularly. 
Um, so it's and so a couple times it was just me and Jeff when we were talking about like uh, I think it was about four or five sessions that we talked about stuff. And then he said, I, I kind of want to do something with it. I don't know what, you know, uh, like a blog or something like that. And I don't remember if it was he or I who suggested, like, why don't we just do a podcast? Because everybody's, you know, about to have one right now. I happen to have uh, an audio studio at work that, um, or a bunch of audio studios at work at my university. And so we just popped down there with a microphone and a digital recorder and just did it really on the rough. Oh, actually on my laptop originally, very on the rough to begin with. And, you know, we talked about it for a while. And then when we got sort of our... I mean, I had our little mission statement about how we love this, but we do not want to cater to the most regressive elements of the fandom. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was talking to Matt John from Rogues in the House uh, on Thursday about Thursday in my time by this point, who right. knows, uh, about this. And yeah, yeah, we, we got into a little bit about the regressive element and how we, yeah. we, we could uh, outshine them maybe by inflating right. the progressive. <laughs> right. And to be fair, I mean, some of that awareness of Appendix N was by some of the uh, you know, there's a combination, there's a spectrum. I mean, there are people who I'm quite, um, I've talked to, I, I think I think very highly of, who are sort of closer to the more sort of conservative end and actually are maybe in communication with the people who are at what I would consider the regressive end, but they're also equally in communication with our end. So I, I respect that. And and so, again, some of that element that was the regressive was the people who sort of brought that back in the fore and said, hey, we should be reconsidering this or should we, it's, you know, or at least... For them, I think it was more of a question of visibility rather than sort of reanalyzing or looking at this, right? You know, the, the, again, what I'll call the the, the um, conservative faction of people who are into sword and sorcery, right? It's like, oh, we just want the visibility of it. It's not so much that we're talking about, like, breaking it down, what does it mean, and how can it be relevant in this day and age, right? It's just like, we should never have forgotten about it in the first place. Okay, Yeah, less, less so about critical thought, more about just uh, enjoyment and, and making sure it doesn't fade away. Um, and and that, again, that's, that's completely, it's very, very important. Um, and so we had that and we were talking and we did about say 20 episodes or so. And then it was like, well, Hey, you know, we sort of know people Jeff has already been doing the same, um, spell burn. It's like, can, you know, maybe we get some, you know, third perspectives on this. Um, uh, so we started with a smaller circle that was sort of the DCC spell burn circle or people who know and out of that and some artists and whatever. And, um, you know, I'm really surprised and shocked that we've managed to get some people, uh, Jeanette Ng, from, who won the World Fantasy Award, came on the show. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously the biggest coup is Michael Moorcock, and that took a while yeah. to, to do. Um, and it was an amazing conversation. I wish we'd just been a little bit more technically proficient at the time. But, um, and all along the way, we've just met amazing, really interesting people from all over the world so far. You know, unfortunately, mostly in the Anglosphere, obviously, because of the nature of, you know, uh, the, the literature we're working from. And mm. I've been looking at, Stuff again. I don't know anything that's non-English, but at least stuff that is um, from a broader cultural perspectives. You know, MRO is an obvious example. Mm -hmm. um, we're both fans of um, of Angeline Adams and Remco Van Stratten, uh, their yep. work there. So, um, and there's a couple others. So I'm, I'm kind of keeping my eyes open for that. Um, so yeah, that's the, for lack of a better word, the origin. It's it's sort of was sort of fairly organic, I guess. You know. Yeah, well, that's cool. And like, yeah. I like that it came out of your friendship and all that. Yeah, that was, uh, that's a really nice story for how it came about. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, actually something you mentioned to me when we were chatting about uh, this a little in advance was how um, in the first 20 episodes or so of the Appendix N podcast, you wrote some really thorough show notes, flush with links to further reading and gaming resources, as well as a basic rundown on the history of the book itself. Then the show notes got a lot simpler <laughs> and it stayed that way. I'm curious, what are your, and I sympathize, don't get me wrong. Uh, what are your experiences as a podcaster, but also as a listener of podcasts with show notes? You know, do you feel anybody reads these things or what? 
Um, I think we did at the early on. I mean, I do. I mean, the ones that constant, uh, you know, the big 800 pound gorilla in the gaming world is Ken and Robin, right? Um, who are Ken and Robin uh, talk about stuff. Um, and so I've found links to all sorts of incredible media through them. Um, so they have pretty extensive show notes. I think they're big enough that they might actually have someone who's sort of, um, you know, on their Patreon who's like helping compile the show notes. So I, I really appreciate that as a resource. The other show, for example, um, The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, which is focused on Cosmic Horror and Call of Cthulhu. They have very good show notes um, as well. Um, so I wish I could still do it. You know, it's just the nature of like, I'm not doing this full time. So and uh, it takes me over a day to do, you know, one, one set of show notes for an episode. So, you know, at that time life was a little simpler and, you yeah. know, I could do it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, also just a life cycle with these kinds of projects where, yeah. you know, the person is figuring out how much work, uh, works for them in their life. And, mm -hmm. but you're also super enthusiastic in the first bunch. And so yeah. they'll tend to be maybe a little more, you know, I'm fine. I, I suspect the day is coming when I will be a little less thorough in how I do yeah. this. I'm, you know, right. we're talking about editing. I'm going to leave some ums in <laughs> yeah. at some point or another. Right. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I do want to backfill some of those. I, I always think, oh, that's an interesting thing I learned about, I don't know, Margaret St. Clair or something like that. And maybe maybe people would be interested in doing that, knowing that. But um, yeah, you know, sometimes you just have to leave things by the wayside so to keep the momentum going. And I mean, that's another reason why our episodes are, are really only an hour. Um, and in fact, we don't record like two hours of material. You're not missing two hours of material for our one hour episode. Um, maybe it's like four or five minutes on top of that. Um, just because as amazing as it would be to continue those conversations, um, you know, we kind of want to leave something on the table so that, you know, that the, the energy level is still there. So, yeah, yeah. Plus like when you, I've listened to sort of like three hour long podcasts once in a blue moon and they're fun, but a, you can't listen to them in one sitting, not easily. Right. And also like, yeah, exactly. The energy can kind of flag on the back end, or maybe the whole energy is just like dudes sitting around hanging out, which is not really the same thing as what you might want out of a show you're listening to necessarily right, right. unless it's like a goofy comedy one in which case yeah sure whatever but yeah i really like the tone and and, and uh, pacing of right. the appendix and book club podcast right. i think you made a good call there yeah. and uh yeah i mean at this point you know it's, it's been going a little while when well, uh i missed some of the story in your origin story there what year did this begin Has i want to say it was 2016 I, I know we were doing it by 2017 and we may have started the book club as a reality uh, might have been early in 2017 i think it's when we started doing this or the beginning of summer of 2017 Okay, okay. Um, yeah. And yeah, by now you've had over 100 guests, I think, on at this point. Um, um, well, 80 some odd guests. 80 some odd guests and oh, 100, okay, 105 episodes, I think, are now are in the can. Um, right. Sorry, I'm getting confused because I, I, I did go back and listen to the early ones, but I, uh, I've, of course, been mostly listening to everything past that. And so my brain just backfilled and like everything has a guest. You're right. You're right. right. Guests came in later. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's still many guests. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm curious, what do you feel makes a strong guest and why was I the best one you've ever had? Well, Oliver, I mean, you know, it goes without saying that, you know, our fine civilized neighbors to the north are always going to be great guests. Um, <laughs> uh, what makes a good guest? Um, you know, because um, it's kind of random. We don't always sort the guests with the text, um, especially now that we are having our listeners vote on the text. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of times it was just like, here's people that we want to talk to regardless, or at least that's the ones, that's the impression I get from the ones that um, Jeff has picked up on that I hadn't necessarily heard of. Um, mm. And I pick a lot of people um, I put on the suggestion list just because I think they are interesting already. Um, pitched, uh, one of our early guests was uh, Fletcher Vredenberg, who's a con contributor to uh, Blackgate. And um, he'd written a lot about historical fiction and sword and sorcery. But actually, I he wrote a piece that I just really, really liked about his friendship um, 
with uh, a a young man in um, Staten Island when they were growing up and that they had fallen out of contact with each other and then had briefly come back in contact, I think, through the death of a relative or something like that. Mm. And it was just an incredibly moving piece. And, you know, he was in Staten Island. So I said, oh, you know, at that point, we weren't remote yet. So he actually came to this, you know, the studio to do, you know, and he was incredibly gracious. And um, he still writes a lot on uh, Blackgate. And I think his own blog is uh, swordssorcery.blogspot or something like that. So, um that was great. We've had some really, uh, we always like to tell the story about how we have strive for the uh, worst possible fit between guests and fiction. And so that was probably uh, Fletcher Pratt's, um, well, the unicorn. We had uh, Strix Beltran, who was a uh, very well-known, you know, uh, both a video game designer, and she was the co-designer of uh, Bluebeard's Daughter. Uh, Bluebeard's Daughter? I think that's the title of the game. And uh, <laughs> that's a very problematic book, uh, both from what's in the content and just actually being able to read it, that the the text, he, I, I don't deny Fletcher Pratt's a good writer, but he's difficult to read. And she thought she were, were trolling her. <laughs> she actually had her, <laughs> when she was reading, she actually had her assistant like look look us up and find us. And then she said, no, no, we're, they're legit, they're real. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it turned out to be one of the best episodes we did up to that point. So um, I'm not really sure. I think that we've all, I think just the, the fact of them being willing to engage. And, and from my standpoint, I really just, um, even, I was I worked sort of peripherally in documentary production for a while. I just really always want to learn something every minute of the day, and so when I have the guests on, I want to know what they're about, you know, or how they what they think. And so sometimes more to that than to the extent of like what's in the text. Like Jeff likes to say it's a cliche question, like what's your secret origin story with fantastic fiction or how you got into gaming. But I'm genuinely interested. I'm like, and I mean he is too. I'm just saying he likes to phrase it as the cliche question because i think he he thinks it's fairly routine but i think that or to ask it is fairly routine but i think all the answers have been great you know i've been really fascinating in terms of the context of how a lot of people came into gaming what re, what fiction meant to them you know when they were younger mm. um so uh yeah that's that's uh, what i think anyone who's willing to engage past this i liked it i didn't like it or i didn't like it but because of this or uh, so such such is the uh, the nature, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, and actually, yeah, I, I will say I, I always enjoy that question at the beginning of your, of your podcast. I think it's a really good, you know, get get into the pool kind of you know sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know what? Damn it, I meant to ask you that first too. <laughs> I was going to steal your question and put it back to you. So you've reminded me. Thank you. Uh, well, what was your origin story uh, with specfic and gaming? Okay, specfic. So, I mean, I've always read. You know, as a kid, read everything, so fairy tales, whatever. I would say uh, before I read The Hobbit or anything like that, I had a, my first and second grade teacher uh, was Swedish. And she had us read the uh, uh, Dolaire's uh, Norse Myths and Gods or Norse, Norse Gods and Myths book from the late 60s, which have these incredible illustrations of uh, all the Norse myths. Uh, Thor with incredibly red beard. And, and it was done very sort of... Um, not not the superhero style. So that that really beautiful sort of um, uh, I'm not sure what medium they're working with. Uh, it's not not just watercolor, pen and ink, watercolor. Uh, they did a Greek myths book, which is still in print. And so that's probably uh, my early uh, fantasy fiction. Uh, C.S. Lewis, certainly uh, Lloyd Alexander, and then I think around I would say around third grade or so. That's when the Rankin uh, Rankin and Bass, not Rankin and Bass, yeah, Rankin and Bass Hobbit animation yeah that came out and so that was incredible and then someone got me the, the hobbit so it's not you know not particularly unique origin story there 
Um, and then at some point later on, so I started reading that, um, D&D came in there uh, somewhere in there as well. I think around third or fourth grade, D&D started showing up. And then at that point, my father had a, a publishing deal with Random House, which was the distributor of uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons hardcover. So he went to visit his Ooh. editor in New York at one point. And so we were just tagging along, sitting outside the office. And then the editor came out and he goes, oh, do you, uh, do you want to, I have something you might like. And he gave us, uh, gave me and my sister the three hardcovers, uh, the original AD&D hardcovers. Which I have somewhere to this day. They're buried under like my aunt has since moved into the house that we used to live in, so it's probably under like three generations worth of other stuff. Um, so that's how I got. The, I, I mean, I'd already been playing D and D, but that's how I got my first A D and D materials. Somewhere in there, I got the blue box, though. I think my parents bought the blue box, um, the Holmes blue box, at the time when they ran out of dice. So you had the little chits, the little. Uh-huh. Uh, you had to, so that's D and D, and then. Through that, I discovered, and then later with deities and demigods, that's how I discovered uh, a bunch of the appendix and authors, uh, H.P. Lovecraft um, and the like. So I think H.P. Lovecraft, I was visiting the family that had put up my father when he first came to the States uh, in high school, and his stepbrother had a copy of the Lancer uh, color out of space. So that, that's the first Lovecraft story I read, and that freaked me the F out. That's a good start. That's a good <laughs> yeah. start. Yeah. yeah um somewhere in there one of those trips someone gave me a copy of uh i think it was um was one of the kane books uh the carl edward wagner one um and also my mom at one point she had was working in new york during the week and came back to boston and she had bought me a copy of the uh ace conan you know the one with him fighting the red ape on the cover yes yes the very first one the first volume good good yeah yeah uh, get there Yeah, so uh, all that, and I had the, uh, not as fortunate as you, Oliver, in terms of having access, but it had a really amazing library systems when I was growing up in Boston. So, you know, just stuff would be, you know, I'd pick stuff, or sometimes my parents would just, like, you know, take my sister to the library. You know, she's about four years younger, and they would just grab three or four books that, you know, were on the shelf and bring them back. Um, so, yeah, that's, there you go, everything. Cool, yeah, and um, I'm, I'm curious. I know it was a while ago, but... Um... Do you remember if that illustration of Thor you mentioned, did he have kind of like a, more of a strong man, big belly, or did he have more like the cut model? Right, muscles? right. This is the controversy that's been going on the web. He's, he didn't have yeah. the round belly, but he's definitely square. He's definitely okay, square, okay. square in his torso. Uh, <laughs> you know, he never had like, uh, you never see his biceps because he had that sort of like that Viking tunic, you know, like a green okay. Viking tunic. Um, uh, I, I, yeah. So it was, yeah, but he uh, looked like he's, he's had a glass of water today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 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 He's not, he's not, he's not prepping for, you know, getting up there and, and, you know, flexing and, and, you know, getting yeah, he's definitely, all I, ask. I just want to, you know, body yeah. positivity in my Thors. Yeah. Um, bushy, bushy eyebrows, the whole works. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you have been reading and thinking of critically about genre fiction for a while now. I imagine even before the podcast, but certainly mm-hmm. with the podcast. And I, I something I worry about with myself because I have met a non-zero amount of other people who do this. You know, you, I'm sure you have too. You meet people who, God, they read so much. They read more than you, you know, you, the royal you here, uh, by by a huge amount. And and yet, then when you see their writing or you listen to them speak about genre, and you're like, did you? learn anything from the 700 books you read this year you know i mean i'm not sure if you judge you but just it's sort of you know it'll have this very surface take and you're like god damn and then you and then i worry anyway i look inward and i go crap is that me you know because i've been doing all this reading and research for my novel and other stuff and i'm just god am i 
am I actually thinking critically or am I just kind of going wee and then coming out the other end and trying to make like a bad photocopy of the thing, right? So right. all this comes to me asking, do you have any advice for people who are trying to think more critically when reading genre fiction? Well, I guess the big question is always um, whether you're thinking about questions of form or you're thinking about questions of, I don't want to separate from form and substance. Those are, they're not like to, totally, you know, separable things. Um, but, you know, whether you're talking about questions of form, uh, emulation, I mean, that's a big problem in the gaming world, right? Everything is like, oh, we want to emulate this thing. I said, is that enough? You know, <laughs> right? Um, it, I mean, that's your first enthusiasm usually maybe, but is it enough? Um, so even when we're talking about like half of our episodes, you should talk about like, you know, what would we yoink from a specific text for using our gaming? But one would hope it would be transformative, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I don't think the novelty for its own sake, like, oh, we just have to put a twist on everything is, is necessarily a desired uh, thing to go through. Um, so maybe the thing, the answer is that you do actually have to work through, you have to recapitulate what you know before you can then add to it and go beyond it. I mean, if we look at Picasso early on, his stuff is relatively, um, you know, anatomically standard. You know, he could, you know, he could do all that stuff before yeah. he moved on from that stuff. Um, so with regards to swords and sorcery, um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack with swords and sorcery. I think the easy thing, and I was just thinking about it today, is that I would say it's fair to say that generally in fantasy fiction these days, at least half of the authors are women, uh, especially in YA, maybe it's three quarters are women, uh, people mm. of color. Um, but that sword and sorcery is probably still 80% plus men, right? Yeah, uh, and like a lot of bald white guys in black t-shirts, of which I'm one of them. Right, right. <laughs> uh, which again, it's fine. Um, but I was noticing that also to a certain extent, it is... Um, it is like I don't see that many people who come into Swords and Sorcery. Let's say that they're middle aged now, right? It was still an enthusiasm that they had from when they were adolescents, right? You don't see too many people who are like, "Oh, I've been working in many genres and up till now," and then suddenly, you know, whatever they are, uh, you know, people who are very, you know, um, uh, diverse in their types of the scope of the writing. And suddenly they walk in, you don't see like Joyce Carol, always suddenly say, I want to write a sword and sorcery book today. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there's a primal appeal that locks in fairly early on with mm -hmm. uh, sword and sorcery. Um, now it could be that the nature of what we've seen in sword and sorcery is then felt rightfully or wrongfully as being potentially exclusionary. And so that's why, um, you know, people of color, women, LGBT people have, been somewhat underrepresented in terms of writing sword and sorcery up till now. Uh, that's changing, obviously. Uh, again, I, I do want to mention, you know, cite Angeline Adams, uh, Cora Buehler, we, who we both know. Um, I don't know if she's wrote specifically sword and sorcery, but she's very versed in it. I believe and, she has. I think I saw yeah. her selling a short story the other day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, looming all over this is Charles Saunders. I do want to actually mention a, a writer I just uh, have been, has been on my list, and I just started reading his books about the beginning of the month. It's a Filipino writer named Daryl Quiog, I think. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He's got a phenomenal book, and I hope he puts us more, called Swords of the Four Winds. And it's um, Asian-influenced uh, sword and sorcery. He's definitely, uh, you can tell he's definitely a big reader of Harold Lamb. Um, oh, good call. Um, but the first half, I think, is sort of a Mongolian, uh, Central Asian character, but he has Filipino-based characters. Um, he's So far, I mean, I've only read two stories of his, but 
uh, tremendous. Um, so uh, I've kind of lost track of your question here, but okay, what is the problem? Have you re- have you learned anything? Um, yeah, like how, what, you know, sort yeah. of when people yeah. are trying to think more critically, because I worry sometimes yeah. that like I'm taking in like plot and character and theme, but then maybe am I thinking at all about the actual sentences? Like right now, I'm really trying to break down Liber. I find uh, there's lots of writing about his character and themes and so on, but very little mm-hmm. about like his actual sentence structures. Like what are his rhetorical things? You know, uh, I find he likes to do those. Uh, what are they called? Homeric epithets, right? Like the yeah. wine dark sea. Mm-hmm. This, you know, he likes to do those. Uh, so yeah, just like how do you how do you shake yourself out of your normal headspace to try and see things that right, you, that's you, a good you question. I mean, I I'm terrible terribly um f- uh stiff writer whether you know that's why i don't love a lot of fiction um how do we do it i mean some of it is rhetorical flourishes and that is a good question because i can it can feel like uh someone else's coat when you're putting them on <laughs> right like it oh, yeah. might be the right size but it's a little scratchy right um so i don't know some of that is maybe something you just have to work through and write and then it'll eventually it'll eventually take the form that it needs to to reflect you while paying homage to the thing that it is that you are so admire. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also never been one that's very good at uh, analyzing those things that you just talked about. The, the actual sentence structure, rhetorical force. I know when I don't like something I can look at it and say, that's that scans wrong um, yeah. or somehow. Um, but also plot and theme. I'm also not as concerned about either. I just want to get surprised, you know, like it's, it's surprising, you know I mean? Actually, you know, we talk more about what the definition of sword and sorcery is. Brian Murphy just had another good piece on that recently. Uh, I, I think saw, it was yeah. posted yesterday. Um, but let's see. Um, well, I guess it depends on what you think. Maybe we do need to sort of think about like what is sword and sorcery, at least in the very broad term, and then say, well, why are we doing this? Right? As it are we, are we vicariously uh wanting to emulate a certain kind of heroism and that's the thing that's that's getting us are we talking about a fallen world and people just trying to make their way through it but in a sort of more visceral way rather than just like you know uh the way that fafford and and the mouser do um and what kind of characters we have so you had that discussion with harold andrew jones the other week about what he calls pulp characters right Mm -hmm. versus um and you're talking about you no know, the 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 arc of Vo's life here in in the novel that you're trying to you know you're working on right now. Um, your fellow Torontonian Robin D. Laws, who does the Ken and Robin t- podcast, he has a thing. I don't know if he coined the term, uh, but I heard it through him. So he has he divides characters, uh, heroic characters, into iconic heroes and dramatic mm-hmm. heroes. And I think that the last thirty or forty years, people have been obsessed with dramatic heroes to the point where they must understand and they take iconic heroes and try to put them in the dramatic mode. So mm-hmm. what Robin D. Laws uh, defines as dramatic hero is what most people would understand. A character who develops, changes, maybe they have an origin story, um, and, you know, they go through the whole act, and, you know, sometimes the people tie that in with um, uh, the the Joseph Campbell, you know, the yeah, hero's, hero's journey, journey, hero's yeah. journey stuff like that. Whereas... Um, the iconic character is defined as a character who, by remaining true to themselves, puts the world to rights. Um, mm-hmm. So that is uh, Sherlock Holmes, Clint Eastwood's The Man with No Name, James Bond, uh, Batman. Um, good old Conan, I figure. Good old Conan. Yeah, Conan's a perfect example. It's because we don't really care. Yeah, Conan comes from Samaria, but we don't care how, how Conan became the toughest of all tough people, right? That's. Um, but what has happened is. This is why like Hollywood can only ever do origin movies with superheroes because they only understand because if it's so much into um, 
you know, writers' workshops that are influenced. What's the guy who does all those uh, screenwriters' workshops? Uh, McKee, Robert McKee. McKee. Yeah. Right, so, so they've been so locked into the idea of dramatic arcs that the only dramatic arc Batman has is his origin story. After that, he becomes an iconic character, right? And yep. he's just Batman, <laughs> right? Superman is not a dramatic character. Superman should never be in doubt. Superman is Superman. He's the best of us. He represents the best about, you know, what, well, and American. the funny thing with Batman is they keep trying to have their cake and eat it too because they're like, well, he's a little older now and now he's got a third Robin. Now he's got a fourth yeah. Robin. And you're like, how right. old is he now if the first right. one was, you know, so, <laughs> but that's what the problem also with never ending stories, I guess. You're right, right. Trying so, to have both dramatic and iconic. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, what I'm guessing at looking about what you've discussed so far on, on this show about Vo is that she is a dramatic character until she becomes an iconic character. And this is that arc of that first book. Right. And then she yeah. becomes the immortal Vo with her, you know, you know, 35 pound Warhammer. <laughs> yeah, I haven't decided how anime that thing is yet uh, yeah. in terms of issues. Right. But, but um, yeah, I mean, I, it's this kind of thing where, yeah, very much I, I'm mostly trained in screenwriting, which is everything you've described. And so I do tend to think of like, well, she's got to change over the whole book and she's got to change each story. And this book is the tale of her like adventuring uh, career. Um, but I also, I'm trying to have my cake in it too. I want each story to stand alone on its own. So that theoretically mm -hmm. I can have the fantasy of having been, say, a, a, a Liber or a Howard, uh, or maybe not Howard, but a Liber or a Moorcock who wrote a bunch of short stories that sold individually and then later decided to string them together. But now I can have the advantage of stringing, stringing them together on purpose. Right. So right. yeah, I think there's almost a bit of like, it's not just me enjoying thinking about being Vo, it's me enjoying thinking about being one of those authors during the era where it was actually plausible to make a living writing short stories. Right, right. <laughs> and, and that's been the great joy of this project is going back and reading short stories, um, you know, as opposed to long novels. Um, someone, again, again, I can't remember who this was. Maybe it was, um, say they started a project called 52 Stories, which is basically read 52 short stories in a year. Um, okay. Theoretic theoretically one a week, but um, that's not, I, I tend to read in bursts. So, um, but being able to read short stories and now I feel like, oh, I've heard this short story. I don't, I feel like I'm obligated to read this entire book. If I've heard about one short story that I really need to read. So I'll just dive in and read that one short story and then, you know, su surface right out of there. Um, you know, or start like with the exemplar short story. Um, so back to, um, library Moorcock for, for a bit. It, um, it's interesting you mentioned this because, uh, Liber, short stories they, he does ultimately do an origin story for mouser and we all know it's the weakest story in the you know pretty much yeah pretty much until the until the stories when they're old man on on rhyme isle uh those were so uneven they make it right. hard for me to recommend library because i'm like well the characters get older which is cool and i and those two books i sorry i could go off but i, yeah. I got opinions about that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um but but Fafford's story is origin story is pretty good and i think the thing is that maybe he had those in his mind but it's not good to but you know it's that he did not write them first right he backfilled there well um, and, and mouser's story was something else that he just reskinned if right, i remember right. correctly and there is another short little mouser origin story that i can't i can't remember if it was Liber or harry otto fisher harry otto fisher wrote and it was in dragon magazine right um which is after mouser has come to the city and so that's that's kind of and he's like a pimp and all these other things um <laughs> and actually moorcock started sort of started at the end too right so he started basically you know and then he sort of backfilled although moorcock there was had the advantage of um, sort of coming into his prime just as he was ready to reapproach uh, Elric at, you know, Elric's earlier adventures. So that it's funny that you read the earlier Elric adventures and there are uh, much more mature prose. And yeah. El the early Elric is less emo than the end Elric, which is kind of, 
Yeah, no, I thought you guys uh, nailed it in your excellent episode on Elric of Melnibony. Yeah, exactly. You have this sort of angry young man story of Stormbringer, which is the end. And yeah. then you go back to, yeah, <laughs> exactly what you just said. Yeah, it's great. Right, right, right. And I guess the other thing that we were thinking about is potentially the, um, uh, again, I haven't read the actual text, but the, that theory of sort of the anxiety of influence that you have to either destroy your influence or be destroyed by it. And so the, you know, <laughs> as a creative at least. Right. And yeah. so maybe, maybe that's what you're wrestling with. And some people are perfectly content never to go past that. And that's the uh, Lynn Carters of the world. And uh, you know, and the elk. Speaking of unnecessary origin stories, of course, yeah. the, the, yeah. you know, the stuff he's added uh, here in Kinder Camp added there. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I think I tend to give uh, Carter more, um, more, I'm more sympathetic to Carter than DeCamp because I feel like DeCamp knew all along what he was doing. He was the older of the pair and, and um, he just wasn't simpatico with Howardian sword and sorcery. Great, good writer otherwise, but not actually simpatico with Howardian sorcery. Whereas Carter very, very, very much loved it from the standpoint of a fanboy. Um, he had a lot of strong commercial impulses too, but I don't think he's the one who was driving the whole um, uh, putting, you know, filling in every single millisecond of conan's life story you know oh, okay I, I think that was more to camp i mean C carter to the extent that it's oh it's cool to tell that story because i just get to write write more and as like comic book authors like to say i get to play with the toys or play in the sandbox right yeah. and i think that's carter's impulse i mean again he did have commercial impulses i'm not don't get me wrong but i think it, he's ultimately a fanboy whereas i don't think the camp was yeah fair and then that's why like i i i you know, when you guys have me on your show, I did it. I, I guess I'll find an excuse to, for some reason, to kind of crap off on him, but it's also very lovingly because I really respect that energy that he brings. And also, I'd be lucky to have his editorial career. Jeez. Um, right. But uh, but yeah, it's this kind of thing where he both frustrates and amuses the hell out of me. Uh, and, and as I, I think I've said in another recording, nobody made me buy the World's End books. His right. like bonkers ass He Man style stories. Uh, right. You know, so obviously I, I like something about him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think he's just, uh, he's uh, he's a kind of human figure, you know, he's this guy that is like, what would I do if I got the opportunity to <laughs> do all these things and get well paid to do it? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I think anybody who's ever um, been unfairly critical of pastiche, uh, for example, uh, you know, if you were to say to them, hey, uh, so-and-so publisher's called right now, you get to write Conan or, or Batman or whoever, they'd be like, oh, awesome. Like, I don't think anybody would turn that down. <laughs> and it's worth keeping it in mind, yeah, right. when people get a bit rough on them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, again, there's always that balance, but it's really obviously unpopular to talk. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Book Twitter, a lot of people will talk about how they market their books and do all the stuff like that. But mm. I think a lot of people just don't understand how the sausage is made as a living writer, right? I mean, a working writer. Uh, you you would know some more than I do, um, but um, so there there are a lot of commercial considerations about you know word count and you know okay I'm going to turn out uh, maybe authors in those days are go well I'm going to write 200 stories a year uh, or however much it is that I get paid to do right um, mm -hmm. not 200 but you know 50 stories a year of which uh, you know I might actually genuinely be proud of five of them um, yeah. but you know uh, 30 of them I will say you know those they're as good as anything else out there and you know. Uh, you know, another 15 were for the rent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You can, I, I often think like, yeah, somebody needed to pay the rent this month when I'm, re <laughs> I'm reading some short stories. Right. But that's cool, man. Like, I think that's another reason why, like I say, like part of me falling in love with this stuff has been fantasizing a little bit about being a writer in like the 30s or even or the 60s and 70s, where like it wasn't easy. I would never say that. You know, I, I read too much about, say, um, to go outside of this stuff, uh, Vonnegut and his struggles before he made a living uh, from his writing. But 
it just seemed like there was room for uh, doing exactly what you described uh, in terms of running a whole bunch of stuff and being okay with like eh, 10 of them are my favorites, the rest, whatever, I'm paying the bills. Uh, or also uh, the mid list in publishing mm-hmm, was sure. much more robust and publishers would take you on for like a three or four book deal with the assumption that your first couple of books might not be that great because you're figuring it out, but whatever, let's get, let's get you out there. Whereas right. I think now the margins are so much slimmer. The mid list, uh, like the middle of almost everything in our late stage capitalist hell, uh, <laughs> has been whittled away. And there's a lot more obsession with uh, big debuts, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of strange. It's like expecting everybody to knock it out of the park first time is odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it, is, it is ultimately harmful. Uh, you know, the fact that they don't have mid lists. I know that there was some commercial reasons essentially why I think it had to do with tax law, in all honesty, why there's not a lot of mid list paperbacks anymore because you couldn't. Uh, you couldn't depreciate your back your inventory, um, oh. uh, so they basically was like, "Well, we can't print excess copies anymore, just to send out when the when you know the bookstore asked for the distributor asked for more copies. We can't keep any inventory, so it's in print or it's out of print." Um, huh. And then, um, as far as the cheap spinner paperbacks now, um, I believe it was um, Charles Strauss was mentioning that, that market has completely collapsed with the advent of ebooks. So now it's really. Uh, doorstoppers can get pr- printed, but you know, 200, 300 page, you know, pick it up in the airport book. Those are gone, right? As a, oh, as a, the air of uh, the dad book, uh, yeah. right. <laughs> a, qu- um, a quantum of violence or whatever the airport right. for like, yeah, by whoever. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, you know, I mean, they're, there still in ebook form, uh, to a certain extent, but discoverability, you know, just random discoverability is not there. You, when you're getting something for an ebook, you're you're actually actively questing for it, as opposed to just you know walking by and it catching your eye, right? Mm. And I guess you know we're reading blogs and Twitter and all this other stuff. It's not the same kind of reading, but that's the kind of it kind of fills the same sort of interstices in our lives of oh, I've got 15 minutes, I'll hop on you know TMZ or you know doom scroll through twitter or <laughs> something like yeah, that yeah no i definitely get way more stuff out of recommendations now than ever and, and whether i'm going to the bookstore or the library and i do kind of you know when mp3s took over music right i remember yeah. very quickly i started to miss going through music shops and browsing mm-hmm. there's the odd one but they're now more novelty right than uh, mm-hmm. they used to be when you had hmv all over the show or whatever um yeah it is, a, it is a different experience of discovery and i think that's maybe why things like your podcast uh, are, are very valuable, whether we're talking about the old stuff or the new stuff, uh, mm-hmm. for finding uh, deeper thought on these works and uh, recommendations that come from a place other than uh, the publisher saying, please buy my thing, or the writer mm-hmm. saying, please buy my thing. Um, it's one of the things I've really enjoyed about your podcast. I've said more than once that it was your recommendation that got me to read uh, The Red Man and others, right. and then wind up befriending those authors and have them on the podcast. There yeah. you go, right? Nice ripple effect. <laughs> right. And that was actually a weird thing, because that was... Um, I think it was, for some reason, August slows down in terms of the number of episodes we do. I think it's because Jeff usually goes to Gen Con, so then he likes to take a, a couple of weeks off there. So um, so I had two weeks in my reading schedule that I had a little break for. <laughs> and I don't know how that one surfaced in my, my like, just, you know, going on Amazon and uh, Angeline and Remco's book just kept on popping up. Like, oh, I see. And that wasn't even with the cover that they've done now. It's like a sort of photo cover. Took a chance on it, and I'm I'm just really glad. And then I said, "Oh, this is this is something, you know. This is this is something interesting here. You know, it's, it's yeah. you know the beginning of something." So, all right, I have a question. I really want to make sure I, I get your answer on here. Um, and I'm saying this a little tongue in cheek, of course. Why do you feel this low art, this low culture, this crapola is worthy of critical study? Because uh, I think that's not a common critique of these old things. People see Thongar and they're like, ah, what is this garbage? But like, I obviously believe it's, it's great and worth reading and worth thinking about, but but why why do you feel that way? And how do you feel about the low art, high art divide or if it's right. even worth talking about? 
Right. Well, in a very broad sense, uh, before I get to sword sorcery, why not? People talk about comics. People talk about westerns. People talk about you know film noir, right? Yeah. Uh, so so <laughs> so why not? It's just as worthy as anything. And specifically, low art. I think low art, uh, quote unquote, low art. Yeah. Um. So I'm not a professional historian or anything, but my dad is a historian. So I've and I've always had sympathy, interest in history. I think low art will potentially tell you a lot more about the society and the context in which it was created than quote unquote high art, which very much may be a product of a person's uh, singular obsessions, right? Right. Yeah, low art, yeah. When low I think art, about literary genre, <laughs> right? <laughs> Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so low art. Well, especially now, literary fiction is all people who've gone to you know. Um, you know, creative writing MFAs or, you know, <laughs> what, what have you. Um, yeah, what is it? Uh, Ohio is the big one in the States or no? Which uh, 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 which one is it? It's not Clarion. It's the science fiction one. What's the big one that's, um, uh, anyway, I don't know. But we yeah, know, it was like it, an it, episode of Girls, I remember. Right. Anyway, go on, sorry. Uh, Iowa, Iowa State writers. Yes, Iowa, yes Iowa. that's what I was thinking of. Right, right. Um, and I've met a number of people who are actually, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, literary fiction authors who are, are well known and actually are pretty down to earth. Um, but again, a lot of times it, it's still moving a fairly circumscribed circle, right? Even the people who didn't come out of that product are still fairly elite. In order to be that kind of writer, you have to be fairly elite, whatever society you come from. Even if you came from Vietnam or the Philippines or India, you would have to have had a secondary or college level education and all that stuff like that. So it's already disconnecting you from. 80% of the daily life of your society in a way that popular fiction may or may not, right? And we know that, you know, Robert E. Howard, as odd as he was, or maybe as an outlier as he was in his town, he was still growing up in a roughneck Texas town in the heart of the Great Depression and could see all that stuff happening outside his door and could mm -hmm. bring some of that grittiness and sandiness and reality through the door. Yeah, and then the, again, the very fact that this, this work has very uh, commercial reasons to exist and commercial constraints actually, again tells you that again the art is a product of its production requirements right and so that's what a yeah. lot of film critics don't get uh they don't get that films are made for commercial reasons and require 200 400 people to be involved on them just for the shoot let alone the post-production the marketing and all of these things that go in there so it's a miracle anything good happens Nobody sets out to make a bad movie, nope. right? <laughs> so, right. Unless you're uh, in some sort of the producer situation, I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, they may have very sort of cynical impulses or, or not particularly uh, thoughtful, but nobody deliberately sets out to make a terrible movie, <laughs> right? Nor, um, nor a terrible, say, sword and sorcery book. Right. It's just too much. It's just too much of your time in your life to deliberately. You, you may have. You may reach the limit of your talent and your gifts, but <laughs> but you're not. You don't deliberately say, "I'm going to write the worst possible." <laughs> you know. I mean, unless it's like some kind of elaborate performance art. Right, <laughs> right. But even then, yeah, not, you know. not a lot of Charlie Kaufman's. I don't think out there writing right. uh, these novels. Right, right. Um, but as to sword and sorcery specifically, um, yeah, I think uh, what's it worth studying for? Uh, I think it has it did change enough times that it's worth looking at, like like the sword and sorcery that was produced during the Weird Tales era, as opposed to the the sixties. Like right there, you have two different things. And one's being written for the pulps, one's being written for the cheap paperbacks, right? Mm -hmm. And now we have the ebook phase, right? Like, what does it mean? Like, oh, this tells a lot about what publishing was like or what people were concerned about, what the anxieties people had in each specific era, right? So 30s obviously have these huge economic anxieties. You have the rise of fascism. You know, if you know, uh, you know if America was a young country. There's no evidence, you know, nobody knew for sure that America would be the, the great colossus that it is, you know, post, you know, World War II, right? So that all those anxieties. 
in the 60s now you have obviously the sexual revolution you have uh imminent apocalypse with you know the cuban missile crisis and the vietnam war right uh through the 80s we have the american malaise and you know uh and it's morning in america again and now whatever we have this <laughs> you know, whatever this is what, whatever this is, is right, yeah, <laughs> corona you know uh, authoritarian governments so it's it's also uh fairly primal uh so it can express a lot of angers and dissatisfaction so i think sword and sorcery is pretty powerful it could be both like representing like a yop at like how power structures have failed us right mm. and, and so you know conan is like yeah what's what's any of this worth right um or just trying to get by, like Fafford and the Mouser, you know, just trying to get by during the course of the day, you know. Um, uh, recently, I've been rereading uh, Michael Shea's uh, Niftaline books. Um, and I haven't read I'm, those. Uh, yeah, what are those like? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, those are tremendous. So definitely a both um, the three strains, I would say for sure, are Clark Ashton Smith, uh, uh, Labor, and um, Liber, Lieber. Uh, and... Um, uh, well, anyway, those are the two strains for sure. But one thing that Michael Shea's, um, every single one of his stories, they're very phantasmagorical. He's a thief character. So he was writing in the 80s when it was started, as you were mentioning, it was started to be all just barbarians, right? But he was writing this wiry thief character um, who one of our listeners said reminded him maybe of physically of a young Iggy Pop. Um, huh? You know, very veiny and, you know, wiry. Um, but every single story starts with a new uh, starts a new setting and it actually hinges on the core economic activity of that particular setting so one of them is in an area that's like a ranch ranch area and it's just all ranches and stuff like that and then there's there's a passage to the underworld there another story is in this um sort of swamp land that's ruled over by the vampire queen and you think oh vampire queen automatically she's bad but she actually has this very prosperous kingdom and the the only price for that is once a year sort of a la aztec she has a husband that once a year she basically you know mummifies but then the <laughs> land is <laughs> you know um and then if the lean goes in there and he and his partner see some kind of angle in this core academic activity uh, economic activity in that region and they go through these very working class set of like okay well we have to get these tools together in order to do this heist uh you know we have to dig a lot you know um all these things so it, it's very much um you know, so it's it's to me it's fascinating, um, and I think he passed away about five years ago. But each one of his stories, like uh, that, was a thing I picked up on. I, I think a lot of people was, like picked up on the sort of more phantasmagorical elements. But I was really fascinated about the sort of procedural things that that Nift had mm. to do. Um, so I think there is room for a lot of personal expression in sword and sorcery again, because again, maybe it's not kind of not as looked you know looked upon as highly. It gives you a little bit more leeway. Um, I would hope. And I think that was the important thing that Brian Murphy was trying to get at with his piece yesterday um, was that um, it's more of a filtering process rather than like putting walls around it and saying, this is sword and sorcery, right? Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was uh, talking with Matt John of Rogues in the House, uh, which will be the interview going out right before this. And I mentioned Brian and I like, uh, have you read his book? I have read, uh, not all the way through, but I have it here. Uh, he was on our show, and I feel yes, ashamed. Course, Brian, yes. I'm, I'm sorry, I have not read it because it's so rich that I stop and take notes, and then I never move forward because I was like, oh, now i got to read those five books. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, my, my reading list definitely got a lot bigger when I read that. Yeah. But um, so, but if you, even if you only got a little ways in, maybe you got to the part where he lists kind of his uh, flexible definition when he's got seven things, mm -hmm. and he's yeah. like, you don't have to have all seven of these things, but if you got like three or four and it feels right, you know, yeah. then that's sword and sorcery. And I love the idea of that flexible definition because it helps you 
you find that sweet spot between being so rigid that it becomes this gatekeeping and the thing becomes kind of a tomb that we're maintaining right. uh, or making it so loose and you know floppy that like anything could be anything and it doesn't mean anything. Right, right. You know? So if it preserves, it, I feel like it, it solves that that problem of, of right. finding the middle space between those two points. Right, right. And I think it's, uh, I mean, he's got a very... Uh, broad and analytical mind also i think his, his training is as a journalist and rather than an academic so he's being descriptive right he's looking at stuff and and, and saying oh this is what you know what people broadly agree on and rather than like being prescriptive and saying this is sword and sorcery and <laughs> you know yeah um, which tax- like yeah 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 we, we we could fill a lot of time with like what is it what is it um but uh but yeah, so okay, so I'm going to force a segue here. So we're talking about being descriptive. There yeah. we go, Oliver. Good one. Um, what <laughs> what uh, have been your personal experiences with creative writing? Um, I wrote a little bit in high school. Um, just we had a lot of English classes and opto classes, and also I went to film school, so you know did screenwriting there. Never really good. I don't have a lot of. I don't have the the ability just to force myself through. And, and get out of my head and say this is that character and, and it's not me and not and like you know so that's always that mary sue problem right so i appreciate what i see and i, I don't i don't i mean i suppose all writers have the same doubts you know and then just frankly i just never had to make a living at it so <laughs> you know so it just never like forced me to get any deeper in there but you know listening to your podcast i'm like okay i have these ideas that kind of percolate in my head you know will they ever turn into anything or it you know, I played a lot of D and D. Maybe that's where that impulse just gets released. You know, it's like by being a dungeon master. Um, mm. You know, character is fascinating. Uh, world building, uh, world building is both great and a problem. I think a lot of fantasy right now is um, too top down in the world building. They've been told you have to like create a perfect magic system. You have to have like all the societal issues worked out in advance like how all the societies in, yeah i see you're nodding your head and frowning too, yeah right? yeah sorry we, yeah. listeners you can't see me but i'm kind of shaking yeah. my head a little bit yeah, in yeah. agreement and yeah. sort of dismay <laughs> yeah so yeah so world building i think is a it's like an, almost a demand now i see this and, and people are really struggling with it writing uh, epic fiction right uh, the the big doorstopper fantasy novels you have to like completely have worked out the world every the magic system and that's like what people are hanging up right like oh well that magic system was already done by such and such author so i have to do some completely different and this is the beauty beauty of swords and sorcery right you don't have to explain to anyone how the magic system works we just know that it's it's bad <laughs> you know don't <laughs> yeah use it. like it's don't a dark magic. and terrible thing that can do can corrupt you with time almost certainly right. yeah <laughs> and, and just create hints drop hints about this what this world is you know uh, again uh, i keep on harking back to ken robin but there are very wise men in the gaming world uh ken height uh who knows more about any kind of obscure history fact that you can think of always says there's nothing more interesting than the real world. Anything that you think is weird is not possibly as weird as something that's happened in the real world. So just reskin that or just even drop it in the you know? Well, it worked for Margaret Atwood, right? I yeah. mean, Handmaid's Tale, famously, she likes to say, like, everything in it's happened yep, <laughs> in some yep. court in some combination, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and yeah, and, and you're making me think of RPG books in a way with, with because yeah, like when you're reading those novels where it's the top down magic system, etc. It's like, are you here for a novel or are you here for the classic RPG uh, splat book setting book? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I know there's a whole new genre lit RPG, uh, you know, which is basically you know fiction that is directly you could sort of map one to one to some sort of gaming. You know, you may not know what the, you know. People are actually are saying you know that the Game of Thrones came out of. Uh, you know George R. R. Martin's GURPS game, which now seems kind of plausible. Really? <laughs> you know? Oh, that's interesting. And Man, um, I used to run GURPS. I didn't get a franchise out of it. <laughs> right. And um, who's the other one? Steven Erickson, you know, again, a fellow Canadian, right? Um, he was also famously a, a major GURPS gamer. And I think that that whole series came out of the world building that he and his um, 
Ian Esselmont did. And that was ultimately built upon to, to create the whole, uh, you know, the whole series there. So, um, so that very much, I mean, and that's an understandable impulse, especially if you're a dungeon master or something like that. It's like, Oh, I just want to put all the pieces in order. Right. But, and, and that was something that I had really struggled with for a long time. And that's probably what would be a block on, and a lot of people's writing is like, Oh, I got to do all this before I can even get to the story. Right. I mean, you allude to something that some, something similar to that. Right. Yeah, I think I think I wish more people would get into the idea of the vomit draft, where you just just throw something down. You can always edit it later. You can always yeah. knock over your pen while you're recording. Whoops. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just just throw it down, right. Mando, and figure out the details later if you even feel you need to. Right. Yeah. Now, to the extent that I've done anything successful, uh, which is mostly I would say like this, the, at this point the show notes or the couple pieces I did for Goodman Games. It's really well, yeah, I wanted weird. to ask you about that. Your your yeah. really great uh, articles uh, for their adventures and fiction series. How did yeah. that come about? Um, I think it was pretty, you know, Joseph liked what, you know, our podcast and he asked Jeff to do one, uh, you know, piece there. Cause you know, um, they had a lot of them coming up and then he mentioned some, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Jeff said, Oh, I can do this one. And I said, I really don't know anything about this other author. And then he recommended me and then Joseph approached me and, you know, I always like take it right up to the deadline. I took it right up to the thousand word limit. Well, actually, we usually like fifteen hundred and bring it right back to like nine hundred ninety nine words because you know. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask know. what's your process like writing these, but I think I get the idea. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, the one thing that uh, it usually hinges on. I'm, I'm terrible at outlining. I, I feel it sucks all the life out of, for me personally out of trying to write something. Um, so for me, oddly enough, with anything, it usually starts with whether it's a game, whether it starts with just a a phrase, a sentence, an image. And it's like, okay, I need to have incorporate, I need to get to that point where that image, um, I need to somehow write up to that scene or to that image. I need to do everything that gets me to that scene, right? Or to that image. Um, So I think like with with short stories, I think they could like, again, let's use the example of the cover of one of the Frazetta covers. Assuming that Conan, uh, Robert E. Howard had never written the Conan stories, but you had all these Frazetta covers, right? How would you write to get to that scene where Conan is wrestling the ape in the red cape? Yeah. Right. Like, what what leads to that? Co- what leads to that image? Right. Um, what leads to that image of Conan fighting the two frost giants? Right. Or so. Um, so for you know, to the extent if I ever get back in writing, I you know have like an image or two. Um, you know that it's like okay, how will I get to this image? I have this image of you know essentially fantasy soldiers out of Stalingrad. Well, how did they get there? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, honestly, I think it's a great way to do it. And both my first, uh, my first and second novel came out of, I obviously had some ideas and themes swirling around in my head that were waiting for the match to strike kind of thing. But the match that struck in both cases was me seeing a photo and going, oh, you know, like what's that person's story. And then I wrote the book. Right. You know? right. So yeah. It's, right. And to the extent that the nonfiction pieces, it's like, well, here's this really interesting factoid that I want, but I can't be just doing a listicle. Right. And so how do I lead to um, this interesting thing that I've learned about uh, Jack Williamson or Lynn Carter? Um, So Jack Williamson, the most interesting thing I found. Well, I mean, tons of interesting things, but the fact that he literally grew up like one of the last the Wild West pioneers in the high, you know, high desert in New Mexico. And they had, you know, he had scorpions and snakes in his house. (laughs) Right. As in the he went his family went out there on a covered wagon, you know. Right. That's so cool. I wonder, have you uh, heard of or re- maybe even read um, Ed Brubaker? He had got a comic trade out last year called Pulp. 
I did actually was your recommendation that I think you wrote somewhere and I said, yeah, yeah, I probably did because I couldn't (laughs) shut up about it. Yeah, no, I I picked it up, read it, went, wow. And then went back to the first page. Like I did that. (laughs) So there you go. Right. I wonder if he was thinking of him uh, when he wrote it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just like an image somewhere in there, right? Or, or again, so even with nonfiction, okay, I, sometimes I'll just like fall in love with some stupid sentence I wrote. It's like, okay, well, how do I justify this sentence? And how do I get to that sentence? <laughs> right? Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> you know, like this one phrase has been tickling in my brain. And so how do I get to that sentence? Or I have a name for a character. Well, who's this character, right? I just have a name. What is this character? Who is this character? You know, or, you know, or some little oh, phrase, yeah. you know. I love it. Uh, well, hey, man, I mean, no pressure, but if you ever do find yourself writing uh, short fiction, uh, you've got a beta reader in me, if you want. Oh, there you go. Um, great, great. Yeah. You know. I mean, there, I would do want to mention, I haven't read the very deeply, but there's uh, Jason Ray Carney. He's doing that um, Whetstone, which is uh, open. Yeah, I've been all over their Discord. Sorry, go mm-hmm. on. Whetstone? Yeah, yeah. And now he's got a, a Cosmic Horror one, too, right? The Something Window. Um, oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I yeah, can't remember, but I'll dig it up and put it in the show notes. Right, right. So... So, I mean, there's still venues. Obviously, the question's getting paid. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, short stories, I, except for I think, I, think, I, I, don't, I don't even know what the best markets pay because they tend to be a bit more coy or whatever. But like, yeah, you're not making a living on short stories right now, but you maybe get a little bit of money that you can invest in yourself. You know, you might get enough money to pay a story editor to go through your next story to help polish it and hopefully level up into the next bigger paying market. Treat like a video game, maybe less like a career with the short stories. Um, but also they help build credibility. Like I'm, you know, focused on this novel, but I'm also working on a short story. I'm hoping to maybe get into the next issue of Tales. We'll see what happens mm-hmm. uh, from The Magician's Skull because I want, um, I'm first of all, I love the magazine. I want to get a story in it, but also I want to build that um, brick road of credibility of short stories to hopefully help me sell the novel as well as point to the podcast audience, which will be huge, I hope, uh, by that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, we're getting around the hour point here, and I want to, if only to honor uh, what you and Jeff do, try and keep it to that uh, length. Um, so I just want to close out. Do you and Jeff have any long-term plans for the podcast? Like maybe you guys would co-write a book on the Appendix N or something? Um, I think we started the podcast to avoid writing something. <laughs> it <was an> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, should, I guess, um, you know, Jeff is finishing up... Um, finishing up school and, and starting a new career. So I don't, I don't know exactly where that will take him at the moment. I would love to get these thoughts together in something, but I don't know, like so many people are doing such a great job. Like I, I the, you know, Brian Murphy, again, a bunch of other people who've really done the scholarship uh, again, Jason Ray Carney, a bunch of other people. So I think our strength is in the sort of conversational nature of just you know, meeting interesting people and talking about it. And I'm not sure that that would work as well on the page. Um, mm. I'm not saying I'm not open to it, but I, I, you know, you know, how do I clear the decks to do something like that? You know, in addition to DMing, you know, uh, day job, you know, the four, four to six hours of sleep I get, you know, <laughs> uh, or whatever. I, and that's not something to be proud of either. You know, you, you really want, I really function best on seven, but you know, sometimes it's, it's four to six. So, well, I hear you. Plus, I mean, a lot of us are having insomnia right now. Good old pandemic. I, uh, yeah, (laughs) I would, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's an interesting question because is anything we we like to think of the written word as this thing it's permanent, but is it any more ephemeral or less ephemeral and then any other medium at this point, you know, it's all digital, which means one bad flipped digit could just destroy everything at the point at this point. But on the other hand, if it's a, we see libraries deaccessioning, deaccessioning their collections like every day. You know, mm. thankfully the Merrill doesn't, but you know, but yeah, everybody that's one else. Reasons why I'm so grateful for special archives because at least yeah. there you can find certain things. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, 
so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's just um, this is the this is you know. Again, like I've said, I don't have any like grander ambitions to springboard into you know turning this into a gaming career. If, you know, if someone came to me and said, "Hey, yes, we want you to do the next Goodman Games box set or something like that," I'd be like, "Okay, well, all right." What are we talking Please about? Please do a Lynn Carter World's End uh, box <laughs> right, right. for Goodman Games. I would <laughs> right. pick that up in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. I mean, it is very DCC, right? That that one definitely could work, you know. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I should talk to Jeff about that and see what he, what he. I mean. Our original list was 290 books, which we thought would take us five years. But now it would, when we last looked at it, we realized it would take us over 10 years at the pace we were going. And Is now, that why you guys made the switch at 100? No, no, to, actually it wasn't. Uh, well, uh, not so much from my part. For Jeff, I think he was starting to get burned out um, specifically on some of the, the sort of the lower tier titles. Uh, and, and my only frustration was by the nature of how we set it up, you know, we couldn't read like all of Edgar Rice Burroughs, not that you would want to read all 75 of his books, but we were like still a long way from getting to John Carter, which I was like, okay, well, it may or may not be his best book, but it's his most seminal book, but it's still like three years out, right? <laughs> right on this list. Or, okay, well, we've read tomorrow, uh, or well, we hadn't read tomorrow at that point, but we read this great book, but we can't read the sequel for another six months, you know, and yeah. that that's kind of makes things very choppy. Um, so I'm actually happy. I think we'll still, I always want to stay in the vein of, um, you know, appendix N, but the fact that it open, opens up the format a little bit. And I think most of our listeners are still going to want books that are of that era or re- directly related, um, so far, but it still opens it up for us. And, and I've managed to read three or four books that, you know, I would not have read otherwise, or have much accelerated up onto my list of like my opportunity to read like, okay, well, I'll finally get to read some Gene Wolfe soon you know um so that's great you know Amaro had been on my you know i need to read this but now it's you know especially with saunders passing last year i was like oh it's really important that i read this now and yeah i know the same spoke and said please read it so there you go (laughs) right right so um yeah so that's kind of where we're at um but i definitely some of the the major major works that are on there i want to make sure that we still get you know in in the in the queue so we may call an audible on a couple of those books say, you know, okay, this one's not up for vote. We're just going to read, you know, uh, Princess of Mars if we don't get to it by, you know, you know, 2022, you know. Well, I think but, you got to do that sometimes, you know, as a GM, I always have, I pull out a bunch of index cards and each one is like this adventure, that adventure, go this way to my players. But one of them says GM's choice. And once in a while, I just point at that one and go that one. That's what we're doing. <laughs> sometimes you just got to grab the oar and be like, democracy is fine, but sometimes no. <laughs> right, right. Right. I mean, we could go into a whole discussion about DMing philosophy, but that's another podcast. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love to, yeah. but yeah. Um, and, and also, I, my apologies if I was kind of trying to. Uh, I keep seeing this wretched phrase lately: the grind set. It's like the mindset of the grind. You're always going to be producing more, doing more things. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? When like you're already doing something wonderful with the mm. Appendix and Book Club podcast. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, if that's all you, if that's all in quotation marks, all you guys ever did, uh, I would be so happy. But uh, of course, there's always that thing as a fan where you're like, oh, I also want to get like the lunchbox and the, you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, we have a, a, one of our listeners, Rick Byrne, he's an amazing graphic designer or logo designer. So he designed our new logo and he's like, hey, you know, uh, you know, some of the stuff could work as a uh, merch or something like that. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, uh, it's not <laughs> something I would love for people to have stuff like that. I just don't want to manage any kind of inventory and be doing order fulfillment. So it would have to be one of those like on demand, you know, type situations. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been there with Kickstarters in the past. Woof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, but I mean, I would love to always talk to more people, you know, um, I don't go to cons or at least I haven't been to any up to the date, but if someone's like, Oh, you know, come down to uh, North Texas and, you know, blather off for a while and meet some of these other people. I'm like, okay, sure. Why not? You know? <laughs> right? yeah. So, so those are the kinds of things that we get in, but the main thing to me is just getting to meet all these people, even if it's just kind of virtually through, you know, the show. So that's been really, really incredible, you know? And yeah, and, I'm really, I'm, I'm really early on with this thing. And I yeah. love the fact that I'm getting to talk to people I've enjoyed listening to such as yeah. yourself. And yeah. I will talk forever, yeah. uh, but then I will have to edit all of it. So uh, I think uh, unless there's anything else you really want to sneak in here about, uh, you know, where people can find you, that kind of thing um, before we go. Sure. Uh, you know, the podcast is Appendix N uh, Book Club. So it's appendixnbookclub.com or and you can, uh, Find us on Twitter at appendix underscore n. That's probably the best way to find us. And um, give us a listen and let us know uh, if you like us and if we're doing okay. And if you're really, really into it, then you can join our Patreon. But everybody gets the show, so we don't we don't hold anything back there. So no, but for as little as one dollar a month, you can be. I mean, I mean this, where they always yeah. go into the kind of that TV voice. Yeah. For as little as one dollar a month, uh, you can be a member and have have a say in voting what books they uh, mm-hmm. they comment on and join the discussions. I think it's a great Patreon. Thank you. Appreciate it. So yeah, that's, that's it. And um, yeah, you know, we'll see you guys out there, guys, gals, and everybody else out there. Jeez, thanks so much for, for coming by, man. It's been great. All right. Thank you so much. So I'm writing a novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and hoy, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>